This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for April 28th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, what do journalism and science have in common? Editor-in-Chief Holden Thorpe discusses common struggles for journalists and scientists with award-winning journalist and PBS NewsHour host, Amna Nawaz. After that, why do we remember some things so easily and others not so much? I talk with researcher Wilma Bainbridge about her work on the problem of what exactly makes things memorable. Is it intrinsic to them? Is it their meaning? Or is it something about their appearance? Or is there some other key to memorability? For an editorial this week in science, editor-in-chief Holden Thorpe spoke with Amna Nawaz, an award-winning broadcast journalist and PBS NewsHour host, about the similarities between journalism and science, both in their approach to truth-telling and in the challenges they face. Holden saw an online interview with Nawaz and thought her comments on bringing her whole self to the practice of journalism would resonate with scientists. The following conversation has been edited by me for length and clarity. The thing that motivated me to really want to talk to you about all this was your statement that journalists bring their whole selves to their journalism and that that's not something that they should shy away from. I bring my whole self to this job because that is the best way that I know how to practice my journalism. And what that means is I bring every single part of myself, my lived experience, my personal experiences, my professional experiences, every interview I've done along the way, every country on which I've set foot, every question I've ever had answered. It is all a cumulative experience that makes me the journalist I am today. And every single person who's come before me has done exactly the same thing. The difference I always like to point out is that there was largely a homogenous group of people, mostly men, mostly 
older white men who were in those roles of determining what was considered to be news and which questions got to be asked and whose voices got to be elevated on those national platforms. We have many more people participating in that conversation today. And I, for one, think journalism is better for it. And our audience and the public we're meant to serve are better served because of it. But I think because it's not something that people have had to admit before, and it's probably, I'll say more accurately, not something people were asked before, because there's an assumption of objectivity with the people who were traditionally the standard bearers for the industry, whereas people who have only more recently gotten to positions of influence in this industry, women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, even some rural community members, they're not granted the same sort of benefit or the assumption that they carry an objectivity that people before them were granted the assumption of carrying. And we've seen that show up time and again, you know, whether Black journalists have to prove that they can, can in quotation marks, cover a Black Lives Matter protest with objectivity. I'm not sure I've ever heard of a white colleague being asked if they could accurately cover something unfolding in a white community because they happen to be of that community. And so I think these are conversations we're having as journalists in our newsrooms, conversations we are should be having. And the industry is different today than it was certainly 20 years ago when I began. I agree with you completely that we're better for it. Does that also relate to things that reporters personally believe? One thing that we get a lot in science is, well, you all think that Climate change is caused by human activity, and therefore you go find evidence of that. One thing that's always been true is we let the facts guide our reporting. But then the natural follow-up question to that is, well, which set of facts? You make decisions every day as a journalist. If you have five minutes to tell a story, you're going to make decisions about which soundbite from this interview to use, which person to interview for that soundbite, which set of data you're going to include to provide evidence for the reporting that you're doing. My bar for how I report my stories, for how I conduct my interviews is fairness and accuracy. Is what I'm saying true? And is it backed up by evidence? And evidence, I mean facts and science and things I can hold up to be provably true. And am I being fair? And that people can have a disagreement about, you know, whether I am rigorous enough or not rigorous enough, whether I ask the right questions. But it's the set of decisions that goes into the final product, I think, that is where people have a lot of questions because there's different people making those sets of decisions today. So you said earlier, what we think of as objectives and what's defined as being objective was set up by a bunch of old white men who developed our ideas about journalism. And it's the same thing in science. Exactly. And so do you have any other reflections on how it got this way? And then what do we do to get people to buy into the fact that there are new ways of thinking about this that we need to be focused on? I do want to be clear. I think objectivity has a place in what we do. I don't think it's the end-all be-all standard for our journalism. I mean, there was a time when we held up neutrality as the goal and the mission for all our reporting. And I think that has long since been abandoned because there are some issues that are just so inhumane or so clear that you can't be neutral. We can't be neutral on things that are evidence and science and fact-based. We can't be neutral when children are being harmed. These are these are standards, I think, that we used to use in the industry that we don't as much anymore. 
And look, 20 years from now, there may be a new way of talking about this and new language we've given it that more accurately represents what it is we're trying to do as an industry. But I think a lot about how we started covering the pandemic early. One of the things I know we were seeing anecdotally, and I was hearing from sources on the ground in different communities, was just how much more deeply and devastatingly communities of color were being impacted early on. And early on, many of the experts we were seeing were largely people who we knew about had been seen and interviewed on national platforms in a number of places, and they were mostly white voices. We had to work really hard to identify, and it's not that they weren't out there, but we had to go out and make sure we were making connections in the communities where people were being most impacted by this new thing we were trying to cover. And that was on us. That was incumbent on us as standard bearers, as leaders in this industry, to make sure that those voices were being represented because they were going to give us the most fair and accurate view in terms of what was actually happening on the ground. That to me, again, was a simple question. It was just, how do we do this the best that we can? Well, you get the people who know what it is and who are living in the communities where this is happening and who understand this in a different way. I think you can apply that to any number of different stories. I think you can apply that to probably any number of different industries as well. But the simple overarching truth to all of this is that this all requires the way that we do things to change. And the other very simple truth that I learned from one of my mentors, Koki Roberts, used to say this over and over again, is change is hard. Change is hard. But I also learned, you know, I lived in Zimbabwe for a year when I was in college. I was writing my senior thesis and they were undergoing a lot of sort of democratic change at the time. And one of my professors told me, translated for me a Shona saying, which was change is like an elephant that's very slow to start running. But once it gets going, you cannot stop it. All of us have to be those external forces. All of us have to push for those changes that we need to see, because I think the work that we do in service to the public that we're trying to serve will be better because of it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we have in science, which I'm curious as to whether there's an analogy for it in journalism, every scientist is a human being who brings their whole selves to their research. Mm -hmm. We're just as susceptible to motivated reasoning. We have every human flaw, you know, that's what makes mm -hmm. my job interesting. But in the long run, we get to the right answer, not because of the character and skill of any one person, right? because we have a process that says, if everybody believes that there was a supernatural force that created life, but Charles Darwin thinks that natural selection did it, well, that's not something that happens overnight the day origin of species gets to the library. Right. Something that happens over a hundred years. Yeah. While lots of people poke and prod these ideas and people with different backgrounds come to look at them. And we're still working on that because Charles Darwin was a sexist and a racist, which was something of his time. And people are now, you know, still digging through a lot of old ideas from behavioral genetics. And so there's a social process yeah. that gets to the answer. Yeah. The reason you can trust scientific consensus is not because of the skills of any one person, but the skills of the collection of people. And the more diverse that collection is, the faster you're going to get to the answer because you're going to wash out all these common sets of biases much right. more frequently. Yeah. Is there an analogy for that in journalism? 
Oh, 100%. Both on the process, which would be our editorial process, right? But also on the timeline, because we are writing the first drafts of history in real time. I forget who coined that phrase, but that that is very true. And as we learn more, as more facts are unearthed, as more evidence is presented, stories change, news changes, right? I think the pandemic is the most recent perfect example of that. The things that we are reporting at the beginning of the pandemic were very different than what we were reporting several months later as the science evolved and as we learned more. It would be unwise of us to present ourselves as infallible institutions that get it perfectly right 100% of the time the first time. That's just not true. That's not the way that the world works. But I think the hope is that the process, which is something that unfolds on an hourly basis, a daily basis in our newsroom, something that unfolds over many months and many years of covering high-profile people or elections or other countries in the world. I think that process over time, the hope is that you are getting closer and closer to the truth. I don't think it's something you ever hold up and say, well, this is it. We have it. We're done. (laughs) I think it's a process. It's something you're constantly working towards. And the more diverse, I will say both in background, but also in experience, in views, in professional and lived experiences that you bring to the newsroom, the more of those voices you have participating in the process and really participating, I mean, not in a check the box kind of way, but having real voice and having real credibility in those conversations, the better the product's going to be in the end, the better our journalism is going to be in the end. Sounds like it's true for science as well. Yeah. And so how do we get people to see that? I mean, have we hurt ourselves by holding up these individuals, you know, in our world, Darwin and uh, Marie Curie and Einstein, and in your world, you know, Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow, and to say these are these great individuals, short changes the idea that actually these are collective endeavors. Let's remember Those people were deemed great individuals by their contemporaries and by the people who got to participate in the narrative writing that becomes the historical record over time. We just have more people doing that today. I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating individual achievements that leap us forward in a number of ways. We do that all the time, right? Think about journalism awards when we acknowledge some of the most exceptional work being done by people who have either moved the industry forward or moved us all forward as an audience because of something they revealed or something they were able to uncover. I think about the frontline reporting being done by some Ukrainian journalist right now and what it has done for our understanding of the war and what it means for the rest of the world. I don't think there's anything wrong with individual achievement. I think it has the potential to push all of us forward both in, in ways that question things that we've done, but also things that build upon what we've, what we've built. But over time, it is a collective effort. It is a group effort. I always say, you know, television in particular and broadcast journalism in particular is a team sport because it's not about what any one person does. It takes dozens of people every single day to get us across the finish line. My last question would be, how do we get the people who consume this to understand this better? so that we don't have to constantly say, oh yeah, that's what we thought, but we found out something new that we weren't expecting, which should be an exciting thing, right? (laughs) It should be cool to find something that you weren't expecting. Yeah. But we've gotten ourselves into this situation where we're constantly getting punished for it, and people are 
the people who have perfectly good intentions who are absorbing this don't know what to think about it. Are there mm-hmm. things we could be doing to inoculate ourselves and the world about this? You know, I learned a long time ago, at least in the practice of my journalism, to think less about how the news was going to be received and more about just making sure that I was doing the best job I could reporting it. And that goes back to something very simple that I've taught my little girls from day one, which is you don't control what anyone else says or does. The only thing you control is what you say or do. And I think applying that to what we do just means if you think too much about how are people going to take this in or how could people misinterpret this, or I don't think you're giving our audience, in our case, the public, in your case, enough credit. We have no other choice but to do our jobs to the best of our abilities. There is no other option. And I think these times when there is both a very messy and very crowded information landscape, and it's very easy for people to go to sources of information that confirm what they want to be true rather than what is actually closer to the truth. There's a few things I hang on to. One is consistency, right? If we've held someone up as an expert or we've reported something to be true, we try to make sure we're repeating that time and again. I think transparency is incredibly important. How do you know what you know? I don't expect people to take the information we present to them at face value. I'm going to explain to you how many people we talked to. What are the sources we cited? How do we know this to be true? And specificity, I think, is also really important. We come to adopt shorthand phrases for things all the time because we're covering them for a while. People are familiar with them. And so I'm just going to say this two-word phrase that you know what I mean, but I don't think we can do that. I think being specific every single time helps to drive home to people that this is credible information that comes back by evidence and facts, and that's why I'm reporting it to you. Again, we don't control how people are going to take this in, but I, perhaps foolishly, maybe a little naively, according to some, come to this work with optimism because I don't know another way to do it. And I have to believe that what we're doing is making a difference in some small way. All right. Well, this is great. Our our readers will be really interested in this. There's so many parallels. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated by the overlap. That was Editor-in-Chief Holden Thorpe and PBS NewsHour host Amna Navaz talking about journalism and science. Stay tuned for a memorable segment with researcher Wilma Bainbridge. We talk about what makes things memorable. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. On Mondays, my daughter brings home a spelling list of 10 words. And by Tuesday, I try to actually know the whole list so I can quiz her in the car or like when we're doing something else. I remember almost all of them usually, but some better than others. You know, why do I remember pinpoint but not boiling? What makes something memorable is actually under debate these days. Is it easier to remember something unique or maybe something standard? Do we care more about how something looks or 
what it means. This week in Science Advances, Wilma Bainbridge and her colleagues published a paper on the characteristics that seem to be important for memorability of objects. Hi, Wilma. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay. I stepped a little bit into the debate there at the opening, but can you go more in depth about the different ideas for what makes something memorable? What are some of the opposing ideas here? First of all, it might not necessarily be the case that there are things that are memorable across people. You would imagine that your own previous experiences should have a large impact on what you end up remembering, right? So if you use the word pinpoint a lot, then you would think that you would remember that word better than people who don't use the word a lot. Yeah. But first, one surprising finding is that there are these big consistencies across people and what we remember and forget. There are some things that we generally tend to remember regardless of our previous experiences and some things that we tend to forget. Wow. So there are memorable things or memorable features of things that are common to different people. Exactly. What other things do you need to kind of tease apart when thinking about memorability of, of objects or features? You might intuitively think that the most distinctive things should be the most memorable, right? If something really stands out, that's what should last in your mind. But actually, there's also some work suggesting it might be more typical things that are more memorable. These things that match a template that you might have for an object. And so it's easier to match to that template. So it's easier to save in memory. And so we were curious which of these two different accounts indicates what we end up remembering later. And what about meaning? So I think an example from the odor world is people will say, oh, a smell triggers so many things that has, you know, has meaning to it. You're totally going to remember, you know, somebody's perfume if you were close to them, that kind of thing. Yeah. So in a lot of our prior work, we've found that there's this intrinsic memorability to images, but people always come back to us and say, oh, well, isn't it just because they're very colorful or have high contrast or maybe have a lot of edges to the images. <laughs> so maybe it's not something that's surprising. It's just something that captures your eyes, captures your attention, and then gets saved into memory. Mm -hmm. But in contrast, it could be maybe it's this deeper meaning that you hint at that makes something more memorable. And this is what we find in this paper. It's not the colors, the lines. It's really the meaning behind the objects that drives what lasts in memory. All right. So this is really interesting. You know, as individuals, you'd think that we have certain triggers for memories, but apparently they're out there in the world. There are also things that can trigger memories in people, regardless of the person. So I opened up our conversation talking about remembering words. And we've also talked about smells randomly right away. But the focus of the work is on objects or images of objects. And for this, in your research, you use the things database. What is that? And what's in there? Yeah, so the Things database was this database recently developed by my colleague Martin Haybard and some of his colleagues. And what they developed was a database of almost all concrete objects out there in the world. What? Yeah, I know it's crazy. How many objects are there in the world? So they arrived at about 1,800 different object categories, and they got about 12 images for each. So their database has 26,107 pictures. So things like cars, phones, cats. Exactly. And how they did this was that they basically went through a dictionary and automatically downloaded pictures for all the concrete nouns in the dictionary. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. But just knowing what something is in the dictionary, is that, is that something that you can get traction on if you want to know about how typical it is, how rare it is? or you know, what the semantic meaning of it is if you're trying to kind of tease out those effects on memorability. One other thing they have in the database 
are people's judgments of what objects are similar to each other. So this is not in our current paper, but um, as part of their database, they had people look at triplets of objects, like let's say watermelon, pineapple, and a car, and then pick what is the odd one out. So you might say the car is the odd one out because it's not edible. So from that, they get these judgments of what people think is similar to each other. And from that, they can derive what are the dimensions upon which people make these judgments. And they arrive at 49 different dimensions that characterize basically all of these objects out there in the world. Okay, so you have a really big data set. It's not just each object. Each object has all of these dimensions. Yeah. And then you want to know memorability. So what did you do to test how people, you know, the memorability of these objects? What's amazing about this database is that we can then use it to look at how do people remember these many different objects across human experience? So we took these 26,000-ish images and put them into this massive online experiment with over 13,000 participants. And what we had people do is do a pretty simple memory test. They saw a stream of images and they had to press a key on their keyboard whenever they recognized a picture from earlier. So you'd see like lemon, computer, mouse, car, lemon. And then when you saw that same lemon picture, you would have to press a key. So then you could say, okay, well, people are more likely to remember a lemon than what, a blade of grass? Yeah, exactly. So then we could see what are the patterns across everyone seeing that picture of a lemon. And what we find is indeed people are really consistent in what they remember. If half of the participants remember the lemon, the other half of participants will remember the lemon too. What were the common features of things that people tended to remember? In general, people tended to better remember things that were more animate, so related to animals or body parts, also things that were a little more emotional, like maybe weapons. And people were worse at remembering appliances, metallic objects, except for weapons, sort of like man-made objects. This is a semantic thing. What it means has an effect on how memorable it is. Exactly. What about this idea of being usual or unusual? How did that show up in your data? We had three different ways of measuring what we call typicality. We had people's judgments of like, is a cat a typical animal? We also use these different dimensions of if something's like man-made or natural, et cetera, to see how typicality in those dimensions relates to what people remembered. And then we also used these state-of-the-art artificial intelligence deep learning models to characterize the features of these different images and see if maybe typicality on those features is related to memory. And across these three different analyses, we found that overall it was actually the more typical objects that tended to be more memorable. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, that is pretty surprising because really the strong intuition is that distinctive things should be the things that we remember. Yeah. But yeah, that wasn't really the case. We also found that this deep learning neural network we had created in another paper was able to predict people's memory for these images too, which is another piece of evidence. It's something about the image itself. Okay, so that actually leads really well to my next question is, can we design something, I don't know what, specifically to be memorable based on the features that you pulled out from the study? Yeah, we totally can because from this study, we basically find a model that combines the 49 dimensions to make a prediction that's about 62% accurate of people's memories. And our deep learning model also does a good job of predicting people's memories. So you could imagine this has big implications for 
education, marketing. <laughs> yeah. Mm, plastic surgery. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's fascinating. So I saw that you did a talk where you showed people faces and then some of them are more memorable or others are less memorable. And you could predict that. How does that fit with what we're talking about here? Yeah. So some of my first work on memorability was actually with faces. Faces are interesting because they are visually generally pretty similar, like similar shapes, similar color palettes. And they're also semantically pretty similar in that they're all faces. But what we find is that there are some faces that everyone tends to remember and some that everyone tends to forget. And it was really these more semantic-y features, like higher order features that predicted face memorability, like whether a face seemed dominant or like a mean person <laughs> or a little bit attractiveness played a tiny bit of a role. So some emotional value there. Yeah, exactly. So interesting. We've talked about visual perception of objects here, but what about other domains, smell or spelling words? Is there a possibility that these same features are important in these other domains, or could it just be a, a totally different ballgame? So we are looking at memorability in many other domains right now. We've already done some work on words. I mentioned the work on faces. We have some work on dance moves. There's some moves that are memorable, no matter who's doing the dance. <laughs> and we're looking at voices right now. And really, one of our major questions is what are the overarching principles that govern what makes something memorable? And this might then give us insight into how our cognitive spaces are assembled. Going back to the, the data that you collected, how international was your sample? Are we, is this kind of a cross-cultural or is it focused more in the U.S. or Western Europe? This was focused more on the United States. So the dictionary used to make the things database was an American English dictionary. And so we wanted to limit our participants to the U.S. because we didn't want there to be some confounds of like difficulty in understanding the images. Right. But I know Martin Haybart, who's on this paper, and his colleagues are looking at making things databases in different parts of the world also. What are some of the avenues that you're going to follow up with after this? Because we were able to look at the memorability of things out there in the world, we're curious how well can we actually predict memory in the real world? So we have a study that we're wrapping up right now where we try and predict people's memory for artwork in an art museum. And we actually find that our neural network that we mentioned in this paper is able to predict what people remember out in the world in a freeform visit of an art museum. Thank you so much, Wilma. Yeah, thank you for having me. Wilma Bainbridge is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to Holden Thorpe for this week's opening segment. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. For an editorial this week in science, our editor-in-chief, Holden Thorpe, spoke with Amna Nawaz. She's an award-winning broadcast journalist and PBS NewsHour host. The two talk about the similarities between journalism and science, both in their approach to truth-telling and in the challenges they face in today's world. The following conversation has been edited by me for length and clarity.
Here's Holden. <laughs> 